Welcome to Health Without Borders. This podcast offers the opportunity for public health students to learn more about issues impacting the health of people from migrant and asylum-seeking backgrounds. My name is Tiko, and I'm your host of Health Without Borders. This Health Without Borders podcast series is recorded in Mianjin, or commonly known as Brisbane. I pay respect to the Jurabal and Jagra people who are traditional custodians of the land on which I live. I also acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as First Australians and would like to thank them for their support for the rights of people from asylum-seeking backgrounds. This series is also supported by the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, or ASRC. Founded 19 years ago, ASRC is Australia's largest human rights organization providing support to people seeking asylum. ASRC is an independent non-for-profit organization whose programs support and empower people seeking asylum to maximize their own physical, mental, and social well-being. As of 30th of June 2021, Refugee Council of Australia reported that there were 32,989 people who were still waiting for refugee status, and the majority of them live among the communities in Australia. Due to political leadership that discriminates against people seeking asylum and long bureaucratic process with immigration, they continue to live in prolonged uncertainty about when and if they will be granted refugee status. They also face complex challenges as they live in this prolonged uncertainty in Australia, such as learning a new language, housing and financial instability, difficulty accessing employment, and grief over the loss of community, country, and cultural connections. In terms of access to health and social services, some of them have visas that are ineligible for accessing Medicare, which is Australia's national medical insurance, and most are finding the access to welfare support to be complex and limited. All these factors create cumulative negative impacts to their general health and quality of life, including their mental health. One of the key factors that contribute to the poor mental health outcomes among asylum seekers is the unequal access to services, resources, and employment compared to general population. Public health experts view this type of unjust and unequal distribution of resources as health inequities. In this series, I have three guests to help us unpack the impacts of health inequities on the mental health of asylum seekers in Australia. They are Mary, Stephanie Long, and Dr. Ignacio Correa Feles. For this episode, I'm very happy to have Dr. Ignacio Correa Feles with us. He is an adjunct associate professor 
in the School of Public Health and Social Work at Queensland University of Technology or QT and co-CEO of the Queensland Program of Assistance to Survivors of Torture and Trauma. For the last 20 years, his work has focused on addressing the social and environmental determinants of health among people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds through teaching, research, evaluation of programs and services, and advocacy. Before we move on to the interview, I would just like to remind you that if any part of the interview trigger negative emotions, please reach out to your support networks and do not hesitate to contact Lifeline at 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue at 1300-224636. Your university also has student counseling services that you can contact. Be kind to yourself and keep yourself safe. And here is my interview with Dr. Ignacio. Thank you for being on Health Without Borders. Before I start with the interview, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, particularly how did you become a public health researcher whose works have focused on migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees? Uh, thank you for having me, Tico. Um, I am originally from Colombia in South America, and I was trained as a medical practitioner there. Um, so when I finished medicine, I went to work in, in the rural, rural areas in Colombia. Um, at a time of high level of social conflict and civil conflict, uh, Colombia has had a, a long uh, civil conflict for more than 50 years. And um, when I went to work in the rural area, I really realized the challenges of providing good healthcare. Um, as a medical practitioner, you can try to do the best health professional you, you, you try to be, but really uh, it's up to the broader systems. It's up to having, for people having safety, having access to services, having the, the basic uh, social determinants of, of, of uh, to be able to access health and food and, and, and medicine as well. So I just realized really that I, I knew a bit about disease and, and, and that's what you learn in medicine, but I didn't know much about health and how to influence systems and policies and, and the broader really picture to make sure that communities who were affected by persecution and, and, and political violence were able to be healthy. So I worked there for a, a few, a couple of years and then went to another city in Colombia and did a postgrad in family medicine and community health. Uh, and it was really a, 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 using a bi biopsychosocial model of health. So looking more at the social determinants of health. Um, and I really liked that approach. So when I left Colombia in 1996, I came to Australia. And then years later, I decided to do a, a PhD in public health because I was really interested more in the, in the bigger picture. Um, so I did uh, my, my degree in public health, my PhD in public health. And since then, I have been working in the area of um, refugee health and settlement integration, the, the, the social determinants of refugee and asylum seeker health. And it's probably that, that influence of my experience living in a, in a context of, of civil conflict and, and, um, and violence that really impacted on my interest in, in working with refugee communities and doing research in this space. Yeah, so that's why I became a public health professional and, and, and I'm working now in this area of, of, um, of health and, and yeah, looking at the social determinants of health. 
Uh, so you mentioned about social determinants of health. Where did you first encounter this concept? And what does it make you think about when we discuss social determinants of health? Look, I, I remember when I was studying medicine at that time, there was a, a subject um, called social social medicine. Yeah, at that time, it was called social medicine. But of course, when you are going to, when you most most of the time, when you want to study medicine or any health profession, most of the time you want to be a clinician. So you want to be in a hospital. You know, that's what people believe is is the the, the pathway of a, of, a, of a doctor is that of a medical practitioner is that. And I remember when I. Uh, took that subject. It was really interesting. I was not really particularly kind of convinced that that was going to be my pathway at the time. I was young and studying medicine, but I remember that at that time, then it, it was providing, that unit was providing like the, the, the bigger picture issues in terms of how policies and how systems, we didn't call that at that time, the social determinants of health, but uh, it was the, the concept. It was that opening to uh, be beyond the clinical practice that you are doing in your training in a hospital or in a, a small community health center. It was more looking at that bigger picture. Then when I went to work in the rural area, I realized the importance of that really because it was the real life, you know, it's the real experience, the lived experience of being there. And in a way, feeling that I was not really well equipped to address those issues because I learned to be a doctor, a clinician, to, uh, you know, do a, a physical examination, prescribe medication, do a, a small kind of surgeries. But yeah, most people were asking help that I couldn't provide in the sense that you prescribe a medication and, the, and the, 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 the patient didn't have the money to pay for that. So in a way, I discovered there the, the social determinants of health in real life. And then I started reading about that. I went to do, do this postgrad in family medicine. I was really a family medicine and community health. And it was really focused pretty much on that, on the social determinants of health. And then started reading lots of literature from the WHO and, and, and research focusing on that. So yeah, it has been really like a progressive uh, understanding of the concept of the social determinants of health. And in the particular area of refugees and asylum seekers of of course, that is vital really to ensure equity in, in, in health. Yeah. And when you started working in the space of asylum seekers and refugees, did you find that the concept of social determinants of health was truly understood? Yeah, I started working in this area basically early in the, in the early 2000. And if you look at the research in terms of, of refugee issues at that time, refugee health at that time, it was really pretty much focused on mental health. So in a way, uh, yeah, the, the forced displacement was seen only through the lenses of mental health, of the impact of mental health. And I, I believe that, of course, that, that is important, but it's, it's a, very, a very narrow view of um, of looking at the at, at more at the at the bigger picture and the and the broader social determinants of health and mental health among refugees, because the, the problem with that is that then in a way the risk of focusing only on the mental health impact of forced displacement is that uh, the, the risk of of stereotyping a population that has been displaced because of violence and persecution and human rights abuses as mentally ill. And I, I don't think that's an accurate representation at all. Uh, we know that, yeah, displacement and, and torture, of course, and, and persecution uh, leads to trauma. But we we know from the work that we do that pretty much that, that most people who have been to that experience 
cope, are coping well, are, are, are healing, are, are recovering from those experiences. Of course, once you have been through those experiences, then there is a risk that, yeah, that there will be mental health problems and, and could develop into a mental health illness. But I will say it's a minority. And, and uh, yeah, if you compare with the broader population in any country, of course, people who have been displaced are at higher risk of developing mental health problems. But that doesn't mean that the whole population of people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds are mentally ill. And I think that's a very important point, which is why um, this series as it focus on the mental health among asylum seekers, the focus is much more on their access to mental health services mm. rather than what are the impact of displacement that they have encountered on their mental health. Because mm. regardless of the extent of the impacts of that, the journey of seeking safety in another country is by itself not always safe. There are a lot of loopholes in terms of services that is correct, Tico. Yeah, the, the, the journey of, the, of our displacement, of course, I mean, people face many challenges. Uh, and sadly, increasingly, we are seeing that countries are closing the borders to refugees. And that's why we have seen that uh, a significant increase, for example, in the number of internally displaced populations are those populations who have been displaced because of war and persecution, but they are not able to cross borders. So they are stuck in their countries of origin in very unsafe conditions and, and situations because pretty much they are being persecuted most of the time by the their own government or military forces or other armed groups. So yeah, that, that is true. And, and then the journey of, of uh, displacement, yeah, doesn't end when you arrive to a, another country and you are seeking protection and you uh, live either in a refugee camp, if it's in a neighboring country, or if you live in a, in a resettlement country such as Australia, for example. We know that the increasing restrictive policies that are happening here in Australia, but also in many other countries around the world, are really impacted on the capacity and the ability of people to find safety, to, to feel safe and to find protection, but also on the ability to access services and health services, mental services, but also uh, yeah, um, issues of uh, safe social connections as well that are very important for mental health and health in general, uh, access to education, access to uh, social security, really, and having a security in a place. Um, yeah, so those restrictive policies are really impact on equity in terms of health in particular, yeah. So we talk a lot about um, health inequities as uh, access to key resources that anyone would need to be able to live a healthy life, to have a good quality of life. And from your experience working since early 2000s until now, what do you see to be the trend on policy level when it comes to supporting access to education and employment um, when it comes to asylum seekers? So we need to acknowledge, of course, that Australia in particular has had a long history of resettlement of, of refugees uh, since the Second World War and has had, we have to say, a quite a successful model of settlement yeah, in terms of the provision of services to refugees, to those refugees who, who are brought uh, from refugee camps, for example, arrive here already on refugee visas, permanent refugee visas, and therefore have the same rights and entitlements as any other 
uh, Australian permanent residents or, or resident or citizens. Uh, we need to acknowledge that. There has been a, a long history of, of good support and, and settlement program for refugees. However, when we talk about asylum seekers, then the situation is very different because we know that this increase in restricted policies, for example, the offshore processing of asylum seekers and the, the prolonged detention of asylum seekers, um, have already then impacted, of course, on the, uh, as I said before, the, uh, the right of these people to find protection and to find safety. The visa situation here in terms of asylum seekers is very complex because there are many, many different types of visa for asylum seekers, for example, those living in the community on bridging visas, but different entitlements of have, some have access to Medicare, therefore, and therefore can access health services in theory. But others have no access to Medicare, no access to uh, social security or, or having some, at least some income that allows them to, to live, to have a, a accommodation and access to food. So that really creates lots of inequities then, because if we talk about equity, really for me, equity from a public health perspective, but also not only from a public health perspective, but from a, a life perspective is really equity is about addressing the lottery of life. You know, the lottery of life is that you can be born in a country that is wealthy, that has resources, a family, you are able to, a family that is a, is a, a healthy family, a, a safe family that you can have access to education. And therefore, yeah, of course, with individual effort, you will be able to achieve lots of things in life. But you can be born in a country in the middle of a war uh, with very little resources or in a family, for example, that is not safe because there is domestic and family violence or, is there, or there is uh, drug use or, you know, and therefore your life is going to be more difficult from them, from them because uh, it's going to be lots of challenges. Yeah, again, it's the individual effort, but it's not enough. We need to make sure and equity is about that. We need to make sure that we have the systems in place, the policies in place that allow that person to be able to get to a, a level where he or she can access the services in the same way as the other person that we were uh, referring before. And, and that is equity, is making sure that we put the systems in place for that person to be able to have access or equal opportunities to achieve a good health status. Uh, and, and I think that's very important. So, of course, if we talk about asylum seekers, there, there are serious inequity there because the systems are not there. And, and even though, and, and even more, the systems are made there to really disadvantage more this population, the people seeking asylum. I really like the way that you frame inequities from the life perspective about how one actually navigate the lottery of life. Our work in public health is to ensure that we can improve the environment, the system in which uh, people are born into and move into so that they have good access to important resources in life. So within public health, we often trying to improve equity to resources through working with community. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience of building relationship with asylum seekers? key element in public health in any area that we work on is really about collaboration and partnerships. And that includes, of course, partnerships with those communities that are directly involved in, in the, the programs or policies or services. So, But we cannot do that 
alone. We need to do it in a collaborative approach. We need to do it with having this, the community at the center of that, of course, as, 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 uh, as in a way leading and co-designing services and programs with the community, but also with other services that are around because the, the, the situation in, in particular for people seeking asylum is so complex that no individual service, even if it's in, in good partnership with the community of people seeking asylum, asylum will be able to, to, to deliver really or, or, to, or to benefit the, the community. So it has to be in a, a concerted efforts across services and, and, and along with government, for example, uh, NGOs, civil society as well. Um, so it's an issue of collaboration. And look, uh, it's, 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 there are lots of challenges is because of course the situation uh, as, a, as an asylum seeker, um, it's very possible that you, you feel very disempowered because the system is so, creates so much disadvantage that then, yeah, there, there are not many op opportunities for people to feel empowered to, to, to lead on, on initiatives. But we have learned, we learned so much from that resilience of people who have been, look, we have people living here in Australia who have been in detention for six, seven, eight years, and some of them are now living in the community, still struggling because, of course, the visa doesn't give them yeah, access to many resources and, and, to, uh, and to many, they don't have many entitlements. But despite all that difficult journey, they are engaged in supporting other asylum seekers through connections with other services, for example, through more activism, through advocacy, you know, so... Yeah, but in public health, we cannot do anything really that is effective and has real impact without having the community really at the center of that and having that co-design approach as much as possible, even though the challenges of the, in particular, this community of, of people seeking asylum because of the oppressiveness of the system, really. I really like the way that you also put that it is as much a collaboration between asylum seekers and the service that they engage with, but also collaboration across different services, which is also quite challenging as well, as we know that a lot of the services uh, in Australian context work within of funding that uh, usually depends on the government. So there's always constraint of resources and funding, obviously. But I also very glad that you highlight about the resilience and how we can learn from the resilience of asylum seekers to continue the work as part of the challenges that come with all of that. And I want to kind of understand whether innovation, because public health comes with a lot of innovation, whether innovation uh, have also gone through this collaboration as well. Right. I think a good example is, you know, that in, in Australia overall, once asylum seekers are living in the community, yeah, we are not talking here about those asylum seekers who are still in detention and therefore are, are under the jurisdiction in terms of healthcare, the jurisdiction of, of, the, of the federal government. But those who are living in the community, of course, rely on services provided by yeah, GPs, for example, uh, but also by the local health services, the state health services, you know, so hospitals. And, and an example of that is that uh, several states around Australia have provided additional funding to support asylum seekers living in the community. And an example of that is in Queensland. In Queensland, there is the, the ASFRA program. The ASFRA program is funded by 
and it's a, an asylum seeker assistance and response program really to, to support asylum seekers in the community and have really a public health approach. Why? Because it's focusing on the social determinants of health for asylum seekers. It's making sure that asylum seekers have access to accommodation, have uh, social support, have access as well to uh, food and, and the basic needs uh, and also to, to health. Uh, so. The ASRA program is funded by the Queensland government. And recently as well, there was an additional funding really to focus on the mental health because we know that the impact of prolonged detention and this difficult and, and, and painful journey for many people seeking asylum has had really a, a severe, severe impact on, on the mental health of, of, of people in the community. And therefore, uh, yeah, there was a, a recent uh, funding as well, uh, and it's, it's called the Asylum Seeker uh, Mental Health Connect program. And it's really a collaboration between those two programs, the program here that supports uh, asylum seekers in terms of trauma recovery, but also uh, another, another service uh, called WWG, the World Awareness Group. And it's a collaborative approach again. So it means that all asylum seekers, any asylum seeker in the community who has uh, mental needs in terms of access to mental health care is referred to, to CUPA, the organization that provides the, the, the trauma support and recovery. Uh, and then uh, there is a, a team uh, specialized in supporting asylum seekers through, for example, psychoeducation, some of the strategies that people can, can use to try to improve their mental health and sleep better, uh, do more exercise, cope better with the current situation in, in, in the middle of very challenging circumstances, of course. And then if those asylum seekers have more complex needs, for example, in terms of mental health, and need additional support, then they are referred to WWG and they are working with, with nurses that are really expert in additional um, support in terms of more serious mental illness, for example, or if there are issues of alcohol or, or, or drug use as well, that, that is a symptom really of the challenges of this journey and therefore they, they can be supported, supported there as well. Um, so I will say that it's innovative is because it's really a partnership between the state government really providing Oquilan Health in particular, providing funding and, and creating and, and in a way is being aware of the needs of this community. And therefore, yeah, providing that funding to organizations, to two organizations that have a long history of working in this field, are working in collaboration, close collaboration, exchanging information and resources as well to lead to a, a better outcome for asylum seekers. But we need to acknowledge that it's not enough, of course. The, the disadvantage experienced by, by people seeking asylum is so huge that there is a still lack of resources to really support the mental health of people seeking asylum, living in the community, and, and therefore there is a need of uh, uh, greater resources. I think one of the uh, innovations in, in the future really is how we can ensure that there is more peer involvement in this. In a way, is for example, people who have had the, the, the previous experience of being asylum seekers and knowing what it's like to be in that situation, being, yeah, uh, developing some capacity and, and, and skills to be able to support other peers. I think that is something that probably uh, could be um, uh, an important innovation. And, and I know that in, in the field of refugee healthcare in particular is something that is is, uh, is common as well, is having a, a peer workforce because having that uh, lived experience is, is very important to support 
other communities who have who are experiencing the same situation and the same challenges. Thank you, Ignacio. That that was just a wonderful summary of the different types of innovations that public health has delivered when it comes to mental health for asylum seekers. So I guess for public health students, um, they can understand that we need more people to think creatively and collaboratively with community to be able to develop future interventions as well. Continuing to what you have identified for future area for improvement about working with peer involvement, what do you think could be the way to creating a platform for asylum seeker? Maybe some of the works that uh, you have seen from within Queensland or from other states that you think have been quite inspiring in terms of creating platform for asylum seekers. Uh, yes, uh, Tico. Look, that, that issue of, of the, the the power of the of the lived experience is something that is vital. And if you see in in the mental health space in general, not only in terms of migrant refugees or asylum seekers, but in general, more and more uh, through the royal commissions, for example, recently in terms of the mental health services in Australia, that focus on on the importance of the peer workforce because it's really that lived experience that, in a way, for me, is is nothing for us without us. You know, is that any health service need to rely really and and, 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 and in terms of planning, developing, uh, implementation as well, has to be in partnership with people who are directly in, in, involved in, in, in the at the center of that service. You know, is that is that people are experts in their lives because in the same way how in, in a chronic disease context, for example, someone with diabetes is an expert in diabetes because that person is living with diabetes 24 hours per day. And therefore, as well, in, this, in, in terms of mental health as well, is the expertise of the person that is experiencing mental health issues is the expertise of the person that should be at the core really of, of that experience really. And yeah, an example of that is, uh, I think uh, probably a couple of years ago, there is a, a, a refugee and asylum seeker um, advocacy network around Australia that is being led by people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds that is really about advocacy, really about being there, it's really about saying, look, we are here. Because if you look at the policies around the world that are really, um, in a way, limiting the rights of asylum seekers to seek protection, those policies, in a way, what they aim is to make people invisible. When you send people offshore processing to Nauru and Manos Island, what you are doing is making them invisible. In a way, you are dehumanizing them. And therefore, for the general public, is out of sight, out of mind. And through these initiatives of, of advocacy, really, of is, is, is trying to counteract that invisibility and make people visible, this, the, the stories of people. These are real people who came to this country to seek protection and look at the way how we are treating, treating them. So is the power of the voice, the power of the voice is being counted as well, being counted. Why? Because it's, a, it's an issue of human rights because they are, I always say that human rights is, is not only for the, uh, and I quote, for the, for the right humans, those who are like us. Human rights are applied to everyone, to everyone, whether you are citizen or not, you know, whether uh, you speak English or not, whether, you, you know. Uh, so th therefore, we need to ensure really that that voice is there, that that uh, that we 
address the issue of invisibility, that we make the experience of people seeking asylum visible. And this uh, network of asylum seekers and uh, people of, uh, from asylum seekers and refugee backgrounds, it's a national network, has been supported by the Refugee Council of Australia, led by bright, most of them young people, most of them young people, yeah, but very, very bright young people and passionate about, about this. Uh, many of them came as refugees and some of them as asylum seekers. And they are doing an excellent job because they are raising the issues and, and, and making sure that they, they, uh, the situation of asylum seekers is, is well known uh, across the community in Australia. We started out this interview talking about your career and, and then moving into the issues of mental health. We're moving into the issues of what exactly is at the core of health inequities. And now we basically have covered some of the key points about community participations, the importance of lived experience, collaboration and partnerships in trying to reduce health inequities so that um, you know the mental health outcomes of asylum seekers can be better. And uh, I think what you have strongly also highlighted throughout the interview is that asylum seekers um, have also been actively um, building collective agency to be able to fight against the injustice um, that uh, in itself also obviously affects their health in general, quality of life in general, and yes, that includes mental health, but also other aspects of health. Um, so I guess moving from here, I guess just want to know um, what keeps you going, um, Ignacio, in this field of working with migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees? What keeps me going? Oh, look, I think it's, um, it's uh, I think it's this, the, the resilience of the human spirit. You know, it's just, uh, uh, for example, uh, my PhD was not in um, focus on refugee health. My PhD was more focused around uh, quality of life at the end of, of life, yeah, advanced cancer in particular. And, uh, and then, but when I was doing my PhD, I started uh, yeah, as, as a part-time doing some work in, in coordinating a, a community development in mental health project at that time with, with refugee and migrant communities. And you see the, the, the similarities between end of life, when you are facing end of life because of a, 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 a serious disease or a serious illness and and uh, at the core of that is the issue of the human spirit, you know, is the resilience of, of people, is, is the, the strength, is, is the uh, ability to adapt, you know. And, and that has been the history of humanity, really. I mean, we are still here because hu human populations have adapted to situations, to conflict or adapted or have had survived conflict and adapted to new environments. We have populated this earth through migration, you know, and and you, you never know that in as anyone's ancestors, they may have been refugees as well, people who have, have to live because of war, because of civil conflict, because of persecution, you know. So we all come from the same place and therefore is we have a common future. And an example of that is these challenges that we have now with climate change. I know that we are talking about people seeking asylum, but it's the issue of that the challenges that humanity faces, the displacement of, of populations, poverty in general, inequality, climate change now, 
the only way how we can address that is if we work together as as a human you know as as a human population as a as this is our home this planet is our home you know we need to share resources we need to share initiatives as well we need to care about each other because i always think that if we are in, working in, in health and i'm talking now to your audience really public health professionals is because you care about people you know at the core of health is that sense of caring that we care about others uh, for us the matter the, the, the health is, is something that matters to us the health of others is something to matter to us and it's not necessarily only the health of those who are fellow fellow australian citizens like us no it's anybody's health you know if you are a health professional you care about the health of anyone uh, and therefore that's what keeps me going is that sense that yeah history is full of, of violence as well of war of conflict of injustice of violation of human rights but we need to keep going because is uh, is a common future. We need to address those issues. It's for the benefit of our children, grandchildren, not only my grandchildren and my children and grandchildren, but everybody's children and grandchildren because we have a future together. Wonderful. And I was just about to ask if you have any message to our public health student, but you really just covered that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think really, um, I just want to thank you, Ignacio, for this uh, wonderful interview. This has been great. And thank you so much for being available for this interview. Thank you, Tico, for the opportunity. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Ignacio. To conclude this series, I encourage you to talk to your peers who also have listened to all three interviews. Drawing upon the content of the interview with Mary, Steph, and Dr. Ignacio, discuss what you understand of health inequities and how it applies to the issue of mental health among asylum seekers. In the context of reducing health inequities, discuss with your peers about the importance of community leadership and collaboration to counter systems and policies that oppress and overlook people from asylum-seeking backgrounds. I'm Chico, see you next semester in my next series of Health Without Borders.